Hey, what not the podcast? Pastor Wolfmuller here. Here's uh, the audio from yesterday's worldwide Bible study, studying Genesis chapter 27, the like of the life of Jacob according to Martin Luther, which is really incredible. So I'm reading through Luther's commentary and making comment on the comment. It's like a Torah midrash kind of thing, but we're looking at the text from Moses and looking at Luther's insight on the particular text which is amazing. This time he talks about, oh, at the end, it's interesting. He gets into the pain that parents feel when their children are disobedient or sick or whatever. That's really interesting. He also talks about some more about the false repentance of Esau and how that prophecy is fulfilled, that Esau throws off his brother. And how does that match up with the prophecy that the scepter will not depart from Judah? And Luther spends a lot of time trying to sort out the details of the fulfillment of that prophecy. So we get to talk about the apologetic import of fulfilled prophecy also, uh, which is something I think we like. Anyway, uh, here's the uh, here's the audio of the study. Hope you enjoy it. Pastor Wolfmuller, Worldwide Bible Class, The Life of Jacob with Luther. Uh, let's dig right in. We are on... Um, we are, let's see, in Genesis chapter 27, let's get over there, right? Uh, verse 39 is our, uh, is where we are in the text. So that's fantastic. Uh, it's, if just to catch you up in the story to remember where we are, um, Jacob and Rebecca have brought to Isaac, uh, Jacob instead of Esau, according to the prophecy, remember the prophecy, the older will, the younger, the older will serve the younger. And that prophecy is the driving thing from this whole story. And this is wonderful. So, uh, so Rebecca, according to that prophecy, brings Jacob for the blessing and he gets it. He has the hairy skin on his hands, the goat skin and everything. And, uh, uh, and he, so he gets the blessing and then Esau comes in from the field, brings the food and Jacob's, uh, uh, Isaac says to him, who are you? He says, I gave the blessing instead of giving it to you. I gave it to your brother. So Esau is mourning, weeping the fact that he doesn't get the blessing. And, but, and we talked a lot about this, uh, how that was a false repentance. So Esau says to his father, have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, my father. Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Remember in Hebrews, it talks about this um, weeping of Esau. In Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 13, I'm just cruising around seeing if we can. Uh, uh, yeah. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17, you know that afterwards Esau, well, let's see here. Um. Uh, where do we get the paragraph? So this is Hebrews 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Uh, hmm. The Palos. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. So remember that not only was the prophecy that the older will serve the younger, that Esau actually fulfilled the prophecy unwittingly in, the, in that he sold his birthright to his brother, 
And then when he wants to come back around and claim the blessing, um, he can't get it. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So, so he was weeping, asking for the blessing, but he wasn't repentant. And we talked about this a lot the last two weeks, really, how, um, how Esau had a false repentance. And that's really going to come out in the text now, because let's see if I can get back where we should have been. Yes. So he, he lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break your yoke from his neck. This is what Isaac says to Esau, which is not really a blessing at all. It's just a, in some ways, it's a prophecy. Here's how things are going to be. They're not going to be how you, <laughs> they're not going to be how you'd like them to be. Um, so then we, so what's Esau's, the result for Esau? So Esau hated Jacob because of his blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, I used to think that that meant uh, what uh, Isaac is about to die, and then I'll mourn his death, and then I'll kill my brother. Luther takes it to mean I'm going to kill my brother, and then my father will mourn. We'll get we'll get to that, but let's go back to this uh, to the. Not blessing, but to the thing that Isaac says to Esau here. Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven from above. Let's read a little Luther. Uh, I want I want to go kind of fast on the Luther stuff because there's it's not real intense theologically or exegetically, really. So I think we can cover some territory uh, today. Of course, I've been overambitious before. Uh, he... That's Isaac, gives him, Esau, a share of the domestic blessing for the blessing pertaining to the state and the blessing pertaining to the church are in the possession of his brother Jacob. Uh, remember uh, last time, especially, we talked about the three estates. We can't talk enough about the three estates. We have the domestic estate, the state estate, and the church estate, and everything is running through that grid in Luther's mind. Everything should run through that grid in my mind. What's what's called what what old dad calls? Is this what old dad calls? I saw old dad on here. What old dad calls a mental matrix? Maybe someone else calls it that. So that the the shape of our mind ha is always church, state, home. Those those three things. So um, so so Isaac gives to Esau a share of the domestic blessing. Your dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth, and so forth. Yet this is not a blessing, for he only says, you are destined to have a fruitful land, that is, food and clothing. Lest the carnal Jew Jewish people have nothing at all, he gives it a carnal promise. So carnal people, carnal promise. 
He adds, by your sword you shall live. That is, you shall defend yourself with a sword. But you shall not conquer or rule. Everything is to be understood without a blessing. Now, why without a blessing? Number one, there's no, he doesn't say it's a blessing. And number two, there's no mention of God in the whole thing. You see, the whole, the, the whole prophecy here that's given is a secular promise. There's no mention of the Lord or God or anything else there. God has not appointed you Lord over other people, much less over your brother, whom, you have pre- whom he had previously accepted. And he has appointed Jacob Lord over his brothers. You will have to be satisfied to dwell in a fertile land, which is fine, to defend yourself with a sword, which is how it goes with most nations, so that you may be safe from your enemies, but in such a way that you are subject to your brother and serve him, at least for a while, until you break his yoke uh, from him and so forth. These two things should uh, should now be compared with each other. Jacob, let's see here. Jacob is teacher in the church and the political magistrate above his brother Esau, and his blessing is called a blessing. So again, some blessings for, or, or some benefits for Esau, but it's just earthly home stuff. Jacob is the one who's the priest and also the ruler. But the blessing of the man Esau is not called a blessing, for the text does not read, it will be your blessing. No, it states, of the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 1 in the seat of scoffers. Holy Scripture is carefully guarded against calling Esau blessed. Notice how carefully Luther is reading the words. I mean, not just the sentences or the phrases, but the words themselves. For the blessing, and and notice also, here's, here's something interesting. This is just for maybe a little aside. Uh, as a little aside, mm, on how to read the Bible, notice how Luther is reading, is also noticing what it doesn't say. So it, it, it doesn't use the word blessed. It doesn't say the Lord God. It doesn't say the Lord. So, and, and this is, hmm, how, hmm, hmm. It, as we're reading the scripture, one of the things that we ought to do, this is just, and this is maybe just kind of Bible study stuff, but as we're reading the scripture, we ask ourselves, what should come next? What, what, should, what should it say? What do we expect it to say? And then we can compare what's said with what's expected. And so we can see what's not said. We can see what's missing from the place. And so Luther is an expert at that. I mean, he, this is, I mean, we have to be careful because we're, what the Lord gives us is what's given, but it, it's also very helpful to notice what's not there. So as an example, um, every single letter that St. Paul writes begins with thanksgiving, except for Galatians. There's no Galatians. It just goes straight into uh, who deceived you so quickly. And so that's important to notice that. We would expect when we open up a letter from Paul for there to be thanks. And in Galatians, there's no thanks. And so we start to notice what's not there as well. 
So this is just part of our um, becoming careful students of the scriptures is that we're, no, we're starting to notice what's missing. L Luther's a pro at that. Uh, nor it, it does not say it's a blessing, nor does it say, may the Lord God give to you, for if the Lord is added, it becomes a blessing. If, the, if, it, mentions, if it mentions something that the Lord is going to do for Esau, now it would be a blessing, but the Lord is not mentioned there in this. Therefore, this is what Isaac means. God will not bless you by virtue of this blessing, but it'll come about that you will have something. You will have something that God will give you, just as he gave to the Arabians and the Egyptians who had fortuitous nourishment and protection without acknowledging God's blessing. The Lord causes it to, to rain on the just and the unjust. So these are temporal blessings that Esau will enjoy. This should be carefully noted. Uh, uh, reading Luther's commentary is always gives me the gift of repentance because I do not carefully note things like he does. So this is a great, this is a great reminder. For those two words, God and blessing, do not appear in the text, therefore it's not a blessing. Besides, he adds, but when you break loose, etc., uh, when you become restless, you shall break his yoke. This is also an unusual little statement, for Isaac would gladly give him more and is careful to ask what else he could bestow on him. But these words pertain to Herod and his generation. Oh, this is interesting. The Jews explain them as dealing with the time of King Joram in the days of Elijah. Uh, this is this is interesting um, because this is going to be a prophecy. Uh, this is going to be a prophecy here of the end of the rule of the basically of the. Um, uh, the kings of Israel, the kings of Jerusalem. And this, this prophecy is going to be connected to the prophecy that's coming later in Genesis. Oh, is it Genesis 49 or Gen Genesis 50, where it says that the, the staff shall not depart from Shiloh until the Christ comes. So how do you understand this breaking the yoke how do you understand that the rule will not depart? There's a Jewish interpretation of it. Uh, and here, this is what Luther is giving. And I'll tell you where he deals a lot with the kind of Jewish interpretation of these sorts of prophecies is um, in, uh, on the Jews and also um, some of the other Old Testament commentary. It's an interesting that, that Luther understands this as a messianic promise in line with the other text, where is it? Genesis uh, 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's the prophecy that Jacob gives. And, and Luther understands these prophecies to have a historical fulfillment, and that that historical fulfillment is an apologetic argument. So here we have the promise from Isaac to Esau. Later, Jacob is going to give the promise that there will be basically a ruler of the Jews until the Messiah comes. And Luther will use that as an apologetic against the, um, the synagogue 
and say, how can you possibly understand that promise to have been fulfilled? Uh, because of the godlessness of the king, the Idumeans revolted against him. And this is not a bad conclusion, for then Edom broke the yoke and freed itself from Israel's domination. But I think the words are understood more correctly of Herod, who was the son of Antipater, the Idumean, who had great authority and honor at the time of Julius Caesar and harshly plagued the kingdom of Israel. Accordingly, it came about that he shook the yoke from his neck and also had dominion. So Herod, remember Herod the Great? Uh, he was, so Antipater was his dad. He was an Idumean, so he was an Edomite. He, his dad fought first against and then for the Romans and received some glory. So Herod also, this, this history of Herod is, is really interesting and really complex. But if, if I remember right, he, he was certainly trained up in Rome. He might have lived some in Rome, trained up there. He was sent by the Romans to rule over Israel and the whole region there. And he went and he ruled. And even though he was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, he called himself king of the Jews with a bit of sass. That's why whenever the, the wise men came and they were looking for the one born king of the Jews, Herod was like, hey, wait a minute. That's my name. You better not be looking for anybody else. But they were. They were looking for a baby. So Herod, you know, sends the soldiers to murder the babies. But, but, and that didn't even make... That, that act of cruelty in Bethlehem did not even make the history books about Herod because he did so many other cruel things. Like what he put some of his family on a boat and set it on fire. He had so many of his brothers and children killed. And I mean, Herod, but at the same time, he was building all of this stuff. That's why he was called Herod the Great. Um, Herod the Builder sometimes because he, he was building the temple in Jerusalem. He was building he built masada he built caesarea he built all these aqueducts he would he was building all this sort of stuff uh so he harshly plagued the kingdom of israel accordingly uh oh this is nice uh someone mentions sent me a comment that augustus said it's better to be herod's pig than herod's son <laughs> that's about right uh, he harshly plagued the kingdom of Israel. Accordingly, it came about that he shook the yoke from his neck and also had dominion. But this leads to the question as to how the prophecy or promise was fulfilled, namely that Jacob is blessed and the older will serve the younger, but that the younger will rule, that's Jacob, and below it will follow Jacob bows to Esau, both he and his domestics, children, and wives, that's later on, chapter 33, when he comes back from exile, on that occasion, he will draw up four lines, and they all prostrate themselves before Esau and bow down to him. Then the Idumeans have dominion over Israel for a long time, and Herod, along with his descendants, rules powerfully almost up to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. That's 70. Nevertheless, Jacob received the blessing on the basis of what is stated in Genesis 49. How then are these two facts to be reconciled? I answer. A rule... So, Again, look at how seriously 
Luther is taking this, like, how do you interpret these prophecies historically? It should be noted. I, I want to, I, I don't think that we do this enough, um, that Lutherans do this enough. You, you see this in the evangelical world. Uh, they will, uh, when they're arguing apologetically, they will use fulfilled prophecy as an apologetic argument. And that is right. The scriptures do that. The scriptures show us the fulfillment of prophecy as an argument that God is true, that the prophets are right. The, the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, the prophecies fulfilled by history, especially the gospel of John. I mean, remember the gospel of Matthew. It starts out with seven fulfilled prophecies. That's the like the first part of Matthew before it gets into the preaching and healing of Jesus. It, there's the the birth and all this is seven fulfilled prophecies and and they're prophecies that were fulfilled not actively by Jesus. Sometimes Jesus will actively fulfill a prophecy like he says, go get a donkey and he rides in on the donkey and that fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah or he'll heal someone, a blind man. And that fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that the blind will see. But at the birth of Jesus, all of these prophecies are fulfilled that Jesus seemingly had, like he, his family left and fled to Egypt and came back, and he was a baby. He didn't say, hey, you know, Joseph, Mary, or mom or dad, or I wonder how Jesus talked to Joseph. I wonder if he called him dad. I want, that's an interesting thing. Anyway, he didn't say to them, hey, let's go back and fulfill the prophecy of Hosea out of Egypt you called my son. No, it happened around Jesus in fulfillment of the prophecy. John does the same thing at the end of Jesus' life. Uh, not one of his bones will be broken. They will look on him whom they pierced. They make his grave with the wicked and with the wealthy in his death. Uh, the, all of these prophecies are fulfilled, not because Jesus was doing or acting or ordering things, but so, so Jesus actively and passively fulfills all these prophecies, which is amazing to see. And that's an argument for the truthfulness of the Scripture. And I just don't see the uh, uh, Lutherans making that argument. If I'm wrong, if you've seen it or you've heard it preached, um, that would be uh, uh, it'd be great. Uh, we have in our Teaching Christian Basics book, which you can download from the website, I think 70 Bible prophecies fulfilled by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Of course, there's a lot more of them. There's also on the website a list of 580 Bible passages considered to be Messianic prophecies by the rabbis before Jesus came. And that list comes from Alfred Edersheim. So I think we need to, I, I think we need to, as we see Luther taking these Old Testament prophecies seriously, I think we need to do the same. I think it's calling us to, to that. So anyway, that's an aside. All right, now here we are. Uh, so Luther says, uh, how can we reconcile these two facts? You see what he's trying to reconcile? He's trying to reconcile the fact that the Genesis 20, 49 promises that Israel will have the rule until the Messiah comes. And uh, Genesis 27 is saying that uh, the Edomites will break the yoke of the Jewish rule. And if that is fulfilled in Herod, how can this stand? And here's uh, the way Luther wrestles with it. 
says, I answer, a rule that lasts an hour or a day is not properly called dominion. So when the people had been led away captive to Babylon, it could have been said that they have lost the rule, but did not actually lose the rule, it was, for it was only chastened. The rule is not lost, it was postponed. Remember the 70-year exile in Babylon. In the same way Jacob bows down to Esau, he wrestles with the angel in such a way that he almost despaired of the rule and the blessing. For he had no other feeling in that struggle than that he would be subjected to his brother and that his brother would slay him, his household, and his wife. This is talking about what's coming up later on when Jacob is returning from exile. Ugh, how incredible is that story going to be as we let Luther ramp us up to it? That This is great. Probably get to it, Genesis 32, probably get to it in five years from now, but who's in a hurry? After the struggle, he is called Israel by the angel and is appointed king in that struggle the moment he succumbs. For you have wrestled with God, says the angel. You will wrestle more with men. One does not lose the blessing and the rule when one is tried in his faith in regard to the rule and blessing. Thus Abraham is tried for an hour in regard to his son's life when God says to him, Sacrifice your son to me, Genesis 22. But he did not lose his son on that account. No, he got him back richly and with profit. Just as the angel gives additional confirmation of the blessing of Jacob at Jacob's request, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Consequently, the blessing did not cease, nor was it removed, but it was tested and assailed in order that it might become firmer and surer. But what about Herod, who certainly ruled over Jerusalem and Judah with great insolence and cruelty? I answer, then the prophecy of Jacob, which said, the scepter shall not depart, Genesis 29.10, was fulfilled. For Mary, the mother of Christ, had already been born, and the parents of John the Baptist were also living after Herod had ruled six or at the most ten years, although this was not confirmed before Christ's birth. Thus Philo gives evidence that he ruled for six years with legitimate power and for 31 years with arbitrary power, which is by no means worthy of being called a rule. Uh, this is interesting, by the way, that this, the rule of Herod and the dating especially of Herod's death which is one of the most important uh, events in establishing the chronology of the biblical events, has recently been um, Andrew Steinman in his book From Abraham to Paul, A Chronology of the Bible, has discovered some, basically some manuscript errors in Josephus that have helped to correct the dating of the death of Herod, and that helps to make all the dates of the New Testament, the birth of Jesus, baptism of Jesus, death of Jesus, all sort of fall into place. Anyway. His father Antipater before him was only a prefect of Judea. Moreover, he did not have a tranquil rule. The Jews were constantly in rebellion because of the promise, which they clung to pertinaciously a word I don't know. And since it has been said, you must serve your brother Jacob, it seemed intolerable that the Jews should be compelled to be subject to their servant Herod. Therefore, Herod ruled, but not with legitimate power. So this is Luther trying to sort out how the prophecy can be fulfilled rightly. 
finally one can and i and i think that what he's shooting for is that the prophecy from genesis 49 verse 10 the scepter will not depart from judah until messiah the king shall come is fulfilled hmm, i better be careful i think luther would say it's fulfilled then at the destruction of jerusalem 70 a.d mm, someone can correct me on that i was confident about it before i said it but now that i say it i'm doubting myself hmm. finally one can also give this answer that he had obtained the rule herod not by divine authority by which kings had previously been appointed in Israel and Judah, but through the tyranny of the Romans as the result of God's wrath, that the Romans are the ones that appointed Herod to rule in order to destroy that kingdom, which was now coming to an end and was gradually being destroyed. Therefore, his dominion is not contrary to the promise, for that very time was the end of the kingdom in which Christ was to be born. And these are two contrary promises of the two brothers. Jacob has obtained the blessing that concerned the household, the state, and the church. Remember, three estates. Esau has no blessing at all. He has only a promise such as the rest of the nations had. For instance, the Syrians, whose dominion the Jews occasionally endured. But they did not lose the rule except at the end, in order that the prophecy of Jacob might be fulfilled. He had foretold, Genesis 49.10, that when Shiloh came, and that Shiloh is a name for Jesus, Shiloh the king. Uh, you know, when you read, uh, when you read the book of Genesis, you get all these promises of the coming Messiah, all the seed promises, all of the, uh, all of the king promises. Uh, it's a, it's it's really amazing, all of these promises. Uh, Shiloh here. Once you get to Exodus, they really sort of dry up. You get very few of these messianic promises. Exodus through Deuteronomy, just a few. When Shiloh came, the rule together with the priesthood and the law would have to be terminated. So there's so again there's Luther uh, wrestling with this blessing and what it means and he understands this you shall as a prophecy and should it be understood as the um, as the rabbis understand it should it be understood as the um, where do they put it here what did it say where the rabbis say it uh, yeah, uh, the King Joram in the days of Elisha. So that uh, so it should it be understood then, or should it be understood as Herod? Luther said he say I prefer the Herod interpretation. Now, uh, Esau. So then here's what happens afterwards. How are we doing on time? Oh, great. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, here's how, I don't know if you all have always read it this way. I, I always read this, that, uh, that Esau knew that Isaac was about to die. 
and Isaac would die and they would mourn Isaac and then he would murder his brother. That's how I understood it. But Luther understands it in a different way, namely, I'm going to murder my brother and then my dad will mourn, <laughs> which is really something. But here at least we see, so we'll have to see if that's right, but here at least we see that uh, that what we indicated earlier, that Esau's repentance was a fake repentance. I mean, it was just crocodile tears or whatever. He wasn't, he wasn't truly repentant. He, was, he just wanted the blessing. Uh, we see that that's true because he, he has no regard for his own sin and selling the birthright and so forth, and trying to subvert the prophecy that the older will serve the younger. There's no repentance there. It's just the, I want the blessing. Concerning the repentance of that godless man Esau, we have stated that he wept, and as Jerome translates, roared with a mighty outcry because of the blessing that had been stolen from him. Uh, I don't know about that Jerome translation. Even though he himself had previously sold it on his own accord. Now words befitting such a penitent, and uh, this you're gonna you got to read this. There's some sass in Luther here, uh, and so you just we just got to be careful readers. Uh, now words befitting such a penitent follow, for as the repentance is, so are the fruit of the repentance and the satisfaction. For what he says, so in other words. It's not a true repentance, so it's not a true work of satisfaction. What, what, if, if it was true repentance, the work would be to serve the brother. It's a false repentance, and the result is murder. Now, there's something there. I, I, uh, so true repentance has, good, has the fruit of good works, of love and service and to receiving from the Lord whatever he would give. But a false repentance is going to have the fruit of sin, of anger, of self-justification, of whatever. Do you remember King David who commits adultery with Bathsheba, and what does his repentance look like is to cover it up, and that's murder. And if we understand that this lives not only in our neighbor, but also in ourselves. We need to especially understand this about ourselves, that, that being sorry for our sin before God and being sorry that we were caught in sin are two very different things. And there are two very different fruits that come from them. True repentance has the fruit of love. False repentance has the fruit of bitterness, murder, anger, etc. That's what we see here. Um, for he says, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Why? Because I will kill my brother. Truly a beautiful repentance. <laughs> uh, again, understanding Luther to have, this is scare quotes. This is what a beautiful repentance. He's going to murder his brother. But look, and look at this. The days for my father, mourning for my father. Why? Because I will kill my brother. So why will Jacob mourn? It's not the days of mourning for my father. Like we're all going to mourn his death. It's that he's going to be mourning and he's going to be mourning. Why? Because I'm going to go and murder my brother. 
He's angry not only with his brother, but also with his parents and with God himself, whose blessing, as he knows, it is from whom alone it was to be expected. This, of course, is the way one should repent. In other words, this is, again, is sarcastic. This is how you should repent, by being angry at God and your neighbor and everything else. No sense of your own guilt and shame. Before this, he was weeping and crying out, Oh, Father Isaac, bless me too, your son. Now he's enraged and is planning a triple murder. For first, he wants to kill his brother. This, of course, is rending satisfaction to God for the sin and penance. Again, you hear the sass in Luther. Satisfaction to God. This, however, he wants to hurl both of his parents into exceedingly deep mourning in order that in this way they too may be killed. He will kill his brother with a cudgel or sword. He'll kill his parents with mourning and grief. Godless Esau knows that this will happen. Therefore, he says deliberately and wittingly that he will kill his parents with this sorrow. See, this is, again, we got to make, but you just got to make sure, I don't know how, I mean, we just got to make sure that we, our careful readers here that we pick up the the the, the sass and the in the leader's word. This, of course, is rending satisfaction to God for sin and penance. Of course, this is how to do it. Go on a murder spree. This is certainly the case of being carried away by devilish rage and malice. While these are his thoughts, if I am not to have the blessing, I will see to it that all the others are also deprived of it. Neither my brother nor my parents nor the entire church shall retain it. For there are only two brothers to whom, uh, to whom the blessing or the succession and the rule and the priesthood pertains. And if Jacob has been killed, the inheritance of the blessing would nevertheless not have returned to Esau, for he would have been either executed or driven into exile, just as Cain was. Therefore, the church and the blessing of God in the house of Isaac were in very grave danger. And here you see the nature of Esau's repentance. It is simply a devilish rage by which he casts out of his heart all respect for and fear of God and his parents. He completely forgets about the all godliness and honor in such a way that if he were able, he would want the blessing destroyed together with his father, his mother, and the whole church. For if his raging had continued and Jacob had been killed, Isaac, a very tender-hearted old man, and his mother Rebekah would surely have died of wretched and bitter grief. Just as because of the murder of his son committed by Cain, it would have been impossible for Adam to live unless God had preserved him in a miraculous manner. So, I don't remember that. So such piercing pains would have killed these parents. Now, this is a, a, just a, an amazing thing to see. How much, uh, how many things go wrong because of envy, jealousy, or the, the desire in the heart to have what, what the other person has that I don't have. And that is uh, bad. I mean, remember how James says it? I don't know if we can find it in James real quick, where James says, uh, you don't have because you don't ask. And so where do wars come from? And he talks about, he, he kind of does this diagnosis of sin. Uh, and it, how it comes from, uh, it comes from jealousy. Where is that? I thought it was in James chapter one. If anyone knows the reference, let's see. 
I, I heard this, but each person is tempted. So I'm in James chapter one, verse 14, starting in verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So desire to sin to death. That's the chain. So, so here, this jealousy of Esau will lead to the murder of Jacob. And it doesn't matter. The whole world could burn. The whole promise could be destroyed. The whole church could collapse. It doesn't matter for Esau. He's simply enraged at the failure to receive the blessing. How, how much, I mean, and this is true in church and in family and in the state too, that we see this, that, that uh, envy or jealousy, that someone has a blessing that I don't have or whatever, now uh, leads to destruction, destroy it all. It's amazing. Let's go a little, I just saw the clock. Let's go a little bit more and then we'll open it up for discussion. For if his raging had been continued and Jacob had been killed, Isaac, oh yeah, we read that already. Therefore, you see how the devil rages in the home life and the household of even the saintliest people. It is not without cause that we warn so often and exhort and cry out so often that you should pray diligently and without ceasing, for the devil is not far away. No, he is in our midst. Observe what a disturbance he called, caused in that very holy church of the fathers, in the house of Isaac where Esau is plotting the destruction of his brother, the murder of his parents, and the overthrow and devastation of the entire church. On the other hand, this grief is justifiable, and Esau has good reason to be so greatly disturbed, but it is his own fault, for he himself has sinned since he esteemed lightly and despised what he now desires so much. And now when he feels God's wrath, he's driven to madness because of grief and impatience. Let us recognize the great malice of the devil. I do not know why that is all caps. It is because of this malice that he has his own children in the homes of the saintliest people. They plot against the lives of their brothers and their own parents. Isaac is a very saintly patriarch, the father of the promise. Rebecca is a very saintly woman and the mother of the same promise. But Esau was born from their flesh and blood. He longs for their death, and he himself plans to bring it about. Of what will we not have to be afraid? But the grief of parents is far more piercing and far bitterer than that of children, than that of brothers or relatives. This is, remember how um, Mary gets from Simeon in the temple when she brings the baby Jesus and presents him, and he says, a sword will pierce your own heart. That's the grief of parents for the loss of children, the death of children. For there are very great and intense emotions that God has created in the whole nature of things and has implanted in parents toward their offspring. Luther, by the way, knew that grief. He lost his daughter Magdalena uh, at a young age. If at any time their hearts are wounded by grief or sorrow on account of a misfortune suffered by their children, this is a very real plague and a poison for their lives. Therefore, parents are easily killed, if not by the sword, then by sorrow and grief. 
I myself have seen that many very honorable parents were slain by godless children because of sadness of heart. Young people neither consider nor understand this, but children should be taught and warned lest they become murderers of mothers and murderers of fathers. For an exceedingly horrible judgment and punishment of God awaits them. The law is laid down for murder, murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. Children often fall smugly into various misdeeds without having any regard for respect toward parents. Daughters sully their chastity and disgrace their pious and honorable parents. But with these shameful acts, they kill father and mother. For father and mother are endowed with that very tender affection and love toward their offspring, which is not so intense and ardent in children. Indeed, they do not even understand it. I think that's uh, true, by the way. Like, I didn't realize, you, you know, you as you grow up and you are a child and then you have a child and you realize how much your parents must have loved you because you know how much you're you love your own children and they can't even they've just got no idea they just have no idea how 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 bound your life is to them how bound your mind and your heart is to them how bound up in in them is everything that you are and they're just doing their thing Therefore, let the young beware to honor and respect their parents to regard the words father and mother as sacred objects of veneration. That's fourth commandment stuff. Honor your father and mother. <laughs> it's great. This would be a good place to pick up next week uh, because Luther will go on to talk more about this father and mother stuff, but it's probably a good spot to break. So let's say a quick prayer, uh, and then we'll uh, stop the recording and then uh, see what questions we got. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, grant us true repentance, so that we would delight in your gifts and receive from your hands all the afflictions that come our way, with patience and endurance and with hope. Grant, we pray especially, O Lord, to, to the children that they would honor father and mother, that father and mother would care for their children, that your church, even those who are single or uh, widows and widowers, would also love and support your gift of family. We thank you for preserving your kingdom uh, through the Old Testament all the way to Christ, who now sits at your right hand, ruling and reigning all things for our sake. We pray that you would uh, bless his rule, that the preaching of your word would go forth to the saving of many. For we ask all these things through the same Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Amen.